Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. You can check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis, and it's where you can sign up for live Zoom events, including on June 17th, former National Security Advisor John Bolton on core interests and alliances. Uh, Coming up on the show today, Michael Dobbs, author of the new book, King Richard, Nixon and Watergate, an American Tragedy. Uh, Michael, welcome to Bookstack. Well, thanks so much, Richard. It's good to be with you. And congratulations uh, on the book. Uh, Of course, it's not that far off 50 years now since Watergate. Uh, Why is it that Richard Nixon still continues to fascinate us? Well, uh, I mean, I can describe how why he fascinated me, which is that, uh, you know, he, his uh, presidency and his fall from office was a kind of Shakespearean tale, which uh, I've tried to indicate in the title of my book, King Richard, and also the subtitle. Um, I mean, here's a man who uh, had very little when he was born to a family of struggling Quaker grocers out in California everything he achieved in life, he achieved through his own efforts and persistence and grim hard work and uh, a certain amount of gambling instinct. He achieves uh, the highest office in the land, the most powerful position in the world. And uh, he does quite a lot with that position. And then he proceeds to throw it all away. And it's the point of throwing it all away when his presidency unravels in the first few months of 1973 that was really the period that interested me. Yeah, you pick it up really at this moment of ultimate triumph for him right after his second inaugural. He's won this landslide election. Uh, And of course, the great advantage that you have as a historian is that you can literally hear what he's thinking about what's happening on a day by day basis. Yeah, and that was another thing that attracted me to this subject. I don't think we're ever going to get as detailed and revelatory a body of archival evidence as we have for Richard Nixon, who paradoxically was one of the most secretive and controlling of presidents. No future president is ever again to again going to tape himself or herself uh, the way Nixon did. Um, the tapes in the end prove, prove Nixon's undoing and no future president is going to risk that. Um, But as a result, we're able to follow Nixon around the White House from room to room, day by day and minute by minute as his presidency falls apart. And that that's something that really attracts you as a historian. In your, your last book on the Cuban Missile Crisis, you had the XCOM tapes that so you could hear President Kennedy in the height of that great crisis. What is it about this kind of immediacy and minute-by-minute history that attracts you? Well, I'm a former journalist, and as a journalist, I always had my nose sort of pressed to the window as great things were happening inside the room um, and I couldn't get inside the room. Um, So my first book was actually about the collapse of communism. Uh, It was called Down with Big Brother and which I'd witnessed as a reporter in the Soviet Union during the critical years 1988 to 93. And when I came back from uh, Moscow, I realized that there was a lot of things I hadn't known. What was going on inside the room? And it's precisely that 
same kind of curiosity that uh, led me to this subject. I mean, there have been lots of accounts of Watergate from the outside. All the President's Men is a good example. But uh, using these tapes and uh, other sources, including uh, the diaries of Nixon's Chief of Staff, Bob Haldeman, um, I was able to describe these events not from the outside, but from the inside, as if the reader and I uh, flies on the wall, watching amazed as these things are happening in, fr in front of us. And it, it is worth saying, actually, I mean, I've, I've read the book, but I've also listened to the book. And the, the audio version of the book does actually have some of these uh, tapes uh, with Nixon, ca characters like Kissinger and, and Haldeman. Uh, so uh, listeners to the podcast, if they, if they choose to go that route, they can actually listen to these recordings themselves. Right. Um, as you say, some of them are, we have inserted into the audiobook. And also my website, uh, michaeldobsbooks.com, uh, includes extracts from the tapes that I've used uh, in the book. Um, if uh, you don't want to buy the audiobook, you can also go to my website and listen directly to the tapes there. Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually very well read. I have to say that the character reading has a kind of Nixonian kind of voice. Uh, so it's really uh, very, very well done, the audiobook version. Uh, one of the things that is, is, is striking to me listening to these recordings and your analysis as you take us through on these kind of pivotal days is how Nixon consciously thought of himself as a grand historical figure. That uh, it, One of the little details, for example, you talk about how he takes time each day to read and think and that he takes uh, de Gaulle who's one of his great uh, heroes instruction very literally that great men of action would draw into themselves so we we hear that on the tapes don't we right I mean he made a habit of uh, going every day uh, to what was called his private hideaway across uh, the street from uh, the Oval Office in what's known as or used to be known as the Executive Office Building, uh, where he had a, a, an office that nobody was allowed to interrupt him there. I and mean, some of the times he would simply be taking a nap, uh, an afternoon nap, because he had trouble sleeping during the night. But at other times, he'd be reading these great works of history and comparing himself to people like Churchill and de Gaulle. Um, he was a student of British 19th century history. He followed, uh, you know, politicians like uh, Gladstone and Disraeli. And uh, so he had a very sophisticated understanding of history. And he certainly compared himself uh, to those historical giants and wanted to uh, leave a similar mark on the world. Yeah, and it's it's something that others note in him as well. You talk about a, a meeting that he has with Theodore White, the author of the famous Making of the President series of books, who, who interviews him before the fall, uh, and he says that he's never met a president more in command of his job, both the strategy and the details. And he, he has this wonderful phrase where he describes him as far out there in history. So uh, again, this kind of sense of the inner man, but also how he is perceived by others? Right. Well, Theodore White was uh, an accomplished flatterer. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, you know, he was very flattered himself to be invited into Nixon's uh, inner sanctum. Actually, that interview took place in the private hideaway that I just talked about. 
Um, so, you know, Nixon loved shooting the breeze with uh, uh, Theodore White and ranging across the whole expanse of history and uh, geopolitics. Uh, White sees him actually right in the middle of the, one of these Watergate crises, unbeknownst to White. Um, but Nixon is able to switch off uh, completely from Watergate for the couple of hours he spends with White and, uh, you know, give White a grand tour of the geopolitical horizon. I mean, you you talk about the uh, the sycophancy and the the flattery, and again, that's one of the things that comes through very strongly in the book. That uh, Nixon has very few people around him who can speak to him as an equal. And uh, you know, I wondered at, at the beginning of the book, you talk about how Lyndon Johnson uh, dies, so that Nixon becomes the only uh, living person who's held the presidency. How important do you think that is that he doesn't have these really the in a sense, these equals around him or other characters like Kennedy had Dean Acheson and Avril Harriman and Paul Nitzer and, and the like, who were able to speak to him in a very uh, assertive kind of a way. Right. I'd say the only true equal in Nixon's entourage was uh, John Mitchell, uh, who was headed up his committee to re-elect. And before that, he had been uh, uh, the attorney general. And a, and a uh, very flawed equal, right, he turns exactly. out to be. So, uh, Mitchell certainly was able to speak to Nixon as an equal, but uh, you know he didn't have that same kind of uh, you know historical gravitas that Nixon did. His talents lay elsewhere. Um, but most of the people in Nixon's entourage, you're right, were people who were you know many years younger than him, clearly subordinate. I mean, many of them had come out of the uh, California advertising industry. A good example is his chief of staff, Bob Holderman, who had previously worked for Walt Disney, and I think also for a toilet company called Santa Flush. But uh, he was an ad advertising executive, and the uh, business of an advertising executive is to put their client in the best possible light. I mean, Holderman had many virtues, uh, but he wasn't a big thinker himself. Of course, Kissinger was a big thinker and there was a certain rivalry between uh, Nixon and Kissinger. Uh, Kissinger was, uh, Nixon, one of the reasons why Nixon installed his tape, taping system was that he didn't want Kissinger to get all the credit for his foreign policy initiatives. I'd, I was quite struck, actually, that sometimes we've read that Kissinger is one of the flatterers and the sycophants and so on. It did strike me when I was listening and reading, uh, listening to the tapes, but also reading your analysis, that actually Kissinger comes out reasonably well from all of this because he is somebody who's always trying to push Nixon towards the bigger historical um, uh, kind of geopolitical ideas and to and to get him away from the the nasty politics that perhaps people like Ehrlichman uh, and Haldeman are pushing him towards. Right. I mean, certainly uh, Kissinger prided himself on being a substance person rather than a process person. Uh, and he was appreciated by Nixon for that. I mean, Nixon could have conversations with Kissinger that he couldn't have with his other aides because they simply didn't have the historical uh, and geopolitical depth that uh, Kissinger did. So Kissinger certainly 
brought all that to the table. Um, I mean, I think he was playing a sort of double, if not triple or quadruple game, because at the same time as talking to Nixon, he was, talk he was talking to a lot of Nixon's enemies, um, particularly in the press. And as a result, he got a much better press than Nixon did. Um, and uh, he took the credit for, or some of the credit, I think, that uh, rightfully belonged to Nixon. I mean, there, there is no doubt, is there, that Nixon, kind of in that context, will endure in history, the opening to China, the end of the Vietnam War, um, kind of this, this sense, even on things like environmental politics, being decades ahead of, of most people. And yet we constantly have to then battle with the question of Watergate. Right. I mean, I do think that um, Nixon's election in 1968 was a pivotal moment in American political history. Um, you can compare it in a way to the uh, counter-revolution in France, uh, led by Charles de Gaulle after the students' uprising of 1968. And Nixon represented a reaction against the liberalism uh, of the 60s. And he tapped into a what he called the silent majority, um, a vast number of Americans who were quite happy with the way America was already and didn't appreciate uh, this counter culture. Uh, and I think we can therefore see a direct connection between the ideological debates uh, in the Nixon period and uh, more recent ideological divisions uh, that we've been through in the last few years under Donald Trump. I mean, that, that's an interesting analysis because by any uh, by any calculation, Nixon really would be a liberal Republican by today's standards, would, would he not? Right. On politics, I think that's true. And you mentioned the uh, Clean Air Act, um, but on social matters, on social identity, uh, using, uh, you know, uh, the, the Nixon's southern strategy, which was basically to play the race card to um, uh, steal away the southern states, uh, which had been in the Democratic column and put them in the Republican column. Um, so, you know, Nixon was adept at playing what we now call identity politics. And uh, you know he thrived on other people's hatred, in the same way that uh, uh, Trump came to thrive on other people's hatred. It was Nixon's enemies, in many ways, that came to define Nixon. And what about Watergate? Um, I mean, the White House counsel, John Dean, calls it a cancer close to the presidency. And, and of course, he's right about that. I mean, what did Nixon know about that break-in? Well, actually, there's little evidence that Nixon authorized, let alone ordered, uh, the break-in uh, of the Watergate of the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee in June of 1972. And he did order various other break-ins, some of which didn't take place. An obvious example is the Brookings Institution in Washington, um, which he uh, ordered his aides to break into on a thievery basis to obtain some pa papers relating to the Pentagon Papers, the official history of the Vietnam War that had been leaked to the New York Times. But uh, so although I think uh, Haldeman was right in saying 
that uh, Nixon didn't order Watergate, but he did cause it. It was somewhat like Henry II and uh, his knights telling his knights, who will rid me of this turbulent priest? And they go off and murder Thomas Beckett without the king really understanding what is going on. I mean, there was a sort of dysfunction in the heart of the White House, and it comes out very clearly in Watergate. Now, what Nixon did order was the cover-up after the event. Um, he certainly uh, turned the, uh, ordered the CIA to, uh, to try to switch off the FBI investigation in order that the uh, CIA declined to carry out. And eventually it was the cover-up, uh, not the crime itself, that uh, proved fatal to Nixon. And you, you have this uh, brilliant moment in the book where Dean and, and Nixon are talking uh, and Dean says, well, yeah, I think this is going to cost us about a million dollars to cover this up. And, uh, and, and he expects the president to just bat this away. But Nixon says, yeah, yeah, we, we can get that money. And Dean is the one who actually uses the phrase, well, you know, the problem is we're amateurs in all of this, that uh, what we really need here is the mafia. Right, that, that shows that Nixon was actually willing to pay the blackmail. They were at that point being blackmailed by one of the burglars, a man called Howard Hunt, who was demanding $150,000 by close of business. And instead of turning it off, uh, Nixon um, you know, openly talks about raising that money and perhaps raising even more money in order to buy the silence uh, of the other burglars. So he absolutely is implicated in this. And, um, you know, his problem was that uh, not so much Watergate, but he wanted to hide a lot of other dirty tricks that were being committed by the same gang. And the people who broke into the Watergate had previously uh, staged similar break-ins, most notably of the uh, California officers of uh, Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist, the, the psychiatrist of the man who leaked the Pentagon Papers. So Nixon didn't want all these other things to be known. And that was really why he felt that a cover-up was absolutely essential, particularly in the period leading up to, the, uh, to his re-election campaign in November of 1972. But then he got stuck into it so deeply that he was simply unable to get out of it. Yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I suppose there's an irony in quite a lot of this that in many ways his campaign sins, uh, the political corruption, was no worse, probably a lot less worse than his two predecessors. That uh, there's there's Robert Caro's work on on that famous election in 1948 for the Senate with uh, Lyndon Johnson. There's the the ballot boxes in Chicago in the 1960 presidential election for JFK. But I guess the difference here is that Nixon got caught and he got caught on tape. Well, right. I don't, had it not been for the tapes, I don't think that Nixon would have been forced to resign in the summer of 1973. So it was uh, the tapes, uh, this kind of diabolical um, uh, machine that Nixon himself had set in motion that uh, causes his downfall. Now, we spoke earlier about other presidents taping themselves. And the difference was that uh, uh, both Kennedy and Johnson turned the tapes on when they thought, turned their recorders on when they thought there was something 
important to record, like the meetings during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Nixon was so ham-fisted and really a technological klutz that nobody trusted him to turn the machines on. So that's why he they invented a system whereby the machines would turn on by themselves automatically whenever Nixon entered a room or picked up a telephone. So as a result, absolutely everything is recorded, including episodes that would later come to haunt Nixon. Yeah, it's, it, there's a lovely moment in the book where uh, you have uh, Julie uh, Julie Nixon dis, uh, trying to tell her father how to work the television and the new uh, music uh, center which they, they've had installed, and the kind of the, the as you say the the technical deficiencies is something that comes across time and again, as well as the uh, the ice cubes rattling in the whiskey glass kind of late at late at night, and it's that kind of immediacy that really brings this book to life it, it it seems to me that 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 sense of intimacy you've as i say you've done jfk and cuba we talked about lbj as well what what specific lessons do you think that uh, that we learn from uh, the tapes and how do the three compare um well i see that uh, you know an american presidency or the white house is a bit like a medieval court um, and uh, in any court, the emperor is always uh, rather isolated, uh, and he depends on the whims of his courtiers. And you can see, um, you know, courtiers striving for the favor of the king or president. Um, so there's all this sort of subtext of court rituals and um, you know, a struggle for power within the court and what happens when, particularly at Watergate, uh, when uh, everything is going wrong and people are trying to shift the blame from one to the other. I mean, as for comparing Nixon with his predecessors, um, uh, Nixon certainly felt that uh, whatever he'd done, he'd, his predecessors had, were e guilty of uh, equal crimes um, I think to some extent he exaggerated that, but uh, there's a, a basis in fact that um, you know both Nixon, both Kennedy and Johnson uh, did uh, various things that we would now consider to be uh, illegal. Um, but um, so I mean, what interests me with all three presidents, I guess, is this you know this uh, a portrait of the court and the people around them how they deal with, uh, you know, very trying circumstances. I mean, I followed Nixon, uh, Kiss, uh, Kennedy uh, at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is the most uh, serious crisis anybody can imagine. And I followed Nixon uh, in Watergate, which was more of a personal crisis. It wasn't a foreign policy crisis, but it's the same thing of a president being tested and what happens um, when he's under great stress and how he responds to it. Of course, we're going through a, a crisis ourselves right now with the COVID-19 pandemic. I wonder what you think that how historians of the future will analyse uh, this crisis in the way that you've been able to analyse first the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, and in, the, and in, in this new book, Watergate. Well, I don't think we're going to have tapes uh, uh, from inside the Oval Office and inside the White House uh, that will enable us to 
tell the story with the degree of intimacy that I've been able to um, with Nixon and uh, the big crisis in his life. Uh, and I think that's going to be a gap for historians. I and mean, some people compare uh, uh, Trump's tweets to Nixon's tapes. Um, there were more than 30,000 Trump tweets, which are a kind of stream of consciousness. But I think they're completely different. I mean, Trump was performing for the public, in the public space, whereas Nixon in the tapes uh, is, you know, just musing uh, about the day's events to his uh, close, uh, in his closest circle. Um, so it's completely different. I mean, journalists and historians are going to try to reconstruct events in the Oval Office under both Trump and Biden. But uh, there's a lot of uh, detail that is simply going to be lost to history, uh, the kind of detail that is so rich in delving into the Nixon presidency. I wonder whether you think there might be an, an accidental quality uh, to uh, analysis in the future, because it's one of the things that struck me from reading this book, that uh, not just the people who were being recorded who didn't know they were being recorded, but even that, as you described before, the fact that Nixon himself doesn't really under always understand the technology. We're living in this new digital age. Perhaps there are things that will emerge for his historians that uh, the people at the time in the White House simply didn't understand uh, was, was going to be captured. Perhaps, perhaps we don't yet understand the implications of, of what we have. I mean, certainly, you know, there's a difference between the first rough draft of history, which occupies journalists, and the uh, his historical facts that only become evident with time many years later. I mean, in the old days, it used to, uh, you know, this emerged with people's diaries, uh, with correspondence, and we don't, cor uh, people don't correspond in the same way they did, you know, uh, uh, during the, for example, the FDR period, and people don't keep diaries the same way they did. Um, there's a lot more emailing going on, instant messaging going on, but somehow I don't, uh, I think this is going to, pose a continuing problem for historians. Of course, there'll be reconstru reconstructions of events through uh, after-the-fact interviews, exit interviews, uh, memoirs will be written. Um, but I think we're going to lose a lot of the historical record that uh, we relied on to write about past presidents. I hope I'm wrong, but you know I'm much more uh, at ease writing about uh, our previous presidents than I think a future historian might be in writing about uh, the current crop of presidents. And finally, Michael, I wonder, what, what do you think that Nixon's legacy is going to be? Having studied him in this great detail over this short period of time, what, what lessons do you think that the Republican Party can learn? And what do you think that his legacy will be on, uh, on the world stage as well as we uh, confront different challenges, whether it's Russia or China, for example? Right. Well, I mean, obviously one of Nixon's, uh, you know, huge uh, foreign policy initiatives was the opening to China, which we're still dealing with. And I think a, a little, you know, Chen Lai was asked about the impact of the uh, French Revolution. And his reply was that it's still too early to tell. 
and uh, we're going to be living with the consequences of Nixon's opening to China for a very long time. And it's still early to tell what, how that is finally going to play out. Um, on the domestic scene, um, you know, I think the enduring lessons are the, uh, the, the risk that any president runs from this very insulated uh, court-like atmosphere in the White House and the difficulty of breaking through it. I and mean, it takes a very grounded person with many channels of communication to break out of his you know, reliance on the small group of people around him who are telling him, often telling him things he wants to hear. And we've seen that in all presidents, uh, the most successful are those that somehow uh, remain, you know, have their own outside channels of communication, uh, somehow uh, find a way of grounding themselves in reality. And the risk that any president runs, particularly in the second term, is to become isolated and uh, just dependent on a few uh, sycophantic courtiers. I mean, I think that's in part what happened to Nixon and any president would, would want to avoid that. So the book is King Richard, Nixon and Watergate, An American Tragedy. It's written by my guest, Michael Dobbs, and published by Penguin Random House. But for now, Michael, congratulations again. The book really is addictive. Uh, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Well, thanks very much. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Damir Marusik. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening.